welcome to Workforce, where we unravel the behavioral science behind things that happen in the workplace that impact your success and well-being, blending academic evidence with real-life experiences. I'm Dr. Grace Lorden, author of Think Big, Take Small Steps, and Build the Future You Want. Today, we're talking about imposter syndrome. We will be defining what it is, we will be talking about how it shows up in our workplaces, and we also crucially be talking about what we can actually do about it. You gotta let go of being perfect and celebrate the wins, because those things fuel you and build and buoy your whole esprit de corps, your whole self-confidence, grit, resilience, hope, and optimism. I think what's often very useful about terms like imposter syndrome is it gives language to describe something that you might be experiencing and it also, in some ways, normalizes it. My partner and my writing partner said to me when I was dealing with imposter syndrome, when you work as hard for yourself as, as you do for others, you're going to be unstoppable. And I think it's such an important piece for people with imposter syndrome is working hard for yourself and learning what that means and how to do it. Before we hear more from today's guests, let's say hello to Teresa Almeida, the awesome behavioral scientist from the London School of Economics. Hi, Teresa. Today, we're talking about imposter syndrome. How would you define it and have you ever experienced it? Hi, Grace. Yes, I, I think I have experienced imposter syndrome, but maybe it, it is good to start with the definition. So imposter syndrome was first coined in the late 70s by two clinical psychologists who were looking into high achieving women and kind of what happens to them. And very simple is this idea that once you've achieved something, you feel like you don't deserve it. And so you feel like you are a failure, you might be caught out. And I think it's really common, um, although it was first studied in women, it kind of affects everyone across ages, genders, and cultures. Um, and I think I read a study that said something like between 50 and 80% of the population has experienced imposter syndrome. So I think that's a really, really important point of it. And it's also not situation specific. So although it happens at work, it might also happen in someone's personal life. So tell me what gives you imposter syndrome, Teresa? I think for me, it is very much being in situations where I've just moved to a new context. So I think public speaking is a big one. Uh, doing a big presentation to a group of people I don't really know would be kind of, I, I feel that imposter syndrome right before it happens. How about you? Do, you? do you feel imposter syndrome? Yes. I mean, but I always very often put myself in situations where I'm with people who know way more than me about different subjects. And I think it's really natural to feel imposter syndrome in those situations, which is something that we'll discuss today about whether or not we should just start relaxing about feeling like an imposter and recognize that it's actually good for us to be in rooms where people know more than us on regular occasions, but definitely on occasions. I think it's also about reframing it. So when, you, when we think about it, it is also a sign of competence. And I think if people remember that, I'm, I'm sure our guests have amazing things to say about it. But I think that's a nice way of thinking about it as well. Yes. So I and I, I also think if anyone is sitting at home feeling smug that they've never felt imposter syndrome, they should do a narcissism test. <laughs> so on that, let us begin. Today, we have three particularly awesome guests. They are Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, a psychologist and executive coach, author of Own Your Own Greatness and Your Unstoppable Greatness. Lisa is also a TEDx speaker and has written about and researched imposter syndrome or phenomenon extensively. Then we would hear from Professor Andy Malinsky from Brandeis University International Business School. Andy's work focuses on how people can overcome imposter syndrome and be able to step outside of their comfort zone. 
And last, but definitely not least, the success guru, Dr. Ivan Joseph. Dr. Ivan Joseph is an executive coach and an author. He's also an ex-sufferer of imposter syndrome and has devoted his career to guiding athletes and sporting champions to overcome their own struggles. He's the author of best-selling book, You Got This, and his TED Talk, The Skill of Self-Confidence, is definitely worth a watch. I started by asking Lisa, Andy, and Ivan, what is imposter syndrome? It's actually termed academically the imposter phenomenon, but we commonly call it imposter syndrome in popular kind of culture. But it is the experience when you are competent, capable, um, expert sometimes, credentialed, but you haven't internalized that. And as a result of not internalizing that, you tend to experience performance anxiety, a performance anxiety that either leads to over-functioning and overworking or self-sabotage. And in that process, you tend to feel like you're a fraud, like you're fooling people, like you know, everything that you're actually achieving is not necessarily yours. Um, when we have those experiences, oftentimes when we get feedback around our performance, even if it's good, we have trouble taking in compliments and internalizing that positive feedback or hyper-focusing on any kind of critical or negative feedback, getting us caught in what we call the imposter cycle. And so that, that feeds on itself and, and kind of creates the, that performance anxiety to struggle to internalize feedback loop. I think commonly people think of it as, as, as feeling like you're in a situation where you feel like it's too big for your britches, that, you, uh, that you're, you're out of your element and that people can see that and that people can see that you're, you're, you're not capable of this and you're not ready for this. Imposter syndrome is a feeling. It doesn't need to be correlated and probably isn't necessarily correlated with your actual competence. So you can feel tremendously, you can be tremendously competent, but still feel imposter syndrome. So that's it's it's a feeling it's a subjective experience my background is in psychology sports psychology and i deal with a lot of confidence and confidence lacking of confidence is really connected to imposter syndrome that genuine feeling of doubt and fear in your ability to accomplish the task we all have it when we're promoted when we're in a new environment it's not unlikely for us to feel like oh my gosh i can't do this and that negative talk helps precipitate that whole imposter syndrome feelings that we sometimes get. So Ivan is an ex-sufferer of imposter syndrome. I've already said that I like to put myself in rooms regularly with folk who have different expertise to me. So I definitely feel imposter syndrome regularly. I guess this raises the question whether or not there is a type of person who is more likely to suffer from imposter syndrome. I asked this question to Lisa. Yeah, I mean, you can see uh, trouble taking in positive feedback, trouble internalizing that it belongs to them, overworking. You can see perfectionism um, where it's really difficult for them to do anything that isn't perfect. Um, overestimating others, underestimating themselves, um, having a, a real difficulty with negative feedback, overfunctioning when they get negative feedback or feeling like they're a failure when they receive negative feedback. So there's a lot of potential ways to see it in, in your direct reports or in people that you're managing. I also wanted to know more about situations that are likely to trigger imposter syndrome. I asked Ivan his perspective on whether it is natural to feel like an imposter when responsibilities are suddenly elevated in the workplace. Should we be reframing imposter syndrome as a good thing, as I've already discussed with Teresa? After all, in many situations, it means, if we're experiencing imposter syndrome, that we are actually growing. 
I think there's a thing that we have to recognize is that we all have skills and talents, right? And we eventually we get recognized for those skills and talents. We outgrow the job, meaning we can do it with one corner of our eye open. We can do it off the side of our desk. We, we're capable and we feel like we're more. And then we get promoted to this new opportunity. And there's, oh my gosh, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. If you don't have a little bit of a little bit of fear when you take a new job, then you haven't really pushed and stretched yourself to the fullness of your capacity and your capabilities. And so when you're just reaching and stretching, you should be learning new and novel skills, uh, policies, practices. And so it's normal to say, dang it, I don't know how to do that. How do I, how do, I do that? Oh my gosh, I care about this job. I don't wanna screw this up. And that fear of failure, whether it's your own reputation or letting down your boss or you know a catastrophic result should kind of make you stand on edge and that's normal. That's there's nothing unusual there. And is there any benefit to people reframing imposter syndrome for themselves? So when they're getting these voices in their heads saying that they're that they're an imposter that they shouldn't be there, what should be the reaction that the person has in order to keep that at bay? Yeah, and this is a good question, right? So first off, when you feel it, oh my gosh, I can't do this. You'll watch me talk about professional athletes when they get that negative talk in their head. We have yep. to disrupt it. A physical cue stop it, right? And then you have to replace it with an affirmation, a statement of, of a belief about who you are and what you're capable of. When I took a job as a new director of athletics, oh my gosh, I didn't know how to do the job. I didn't know how to read budgets. I didn't know how to manage 50 people. I can't do this job, stop it. There's a reason my book is called You Got This. Mm -hmm. This was my centering exercise. Clap twice, rub my fingers together, replace it with an affirmation, you got this. I can learn anything, nobody outworks me, right? When you stop that negative thought, when you disrupt it, it's one way to stop imposter syndrome because what imposter syndrome does to you is it paralyzes you. It stops you from putting your hand up. It stops you from answering questions or taking risks or being innovative. And mm -hmm. at its worst case, it makes you quit and wanna go back to where you're comfortable. That doesn't make you become a high performer. Andy also had some interesting views on reframing imposter syndrome, particularly thinking about people who are right at the start of learning something new, or if they are the most junior member of the team right now. If you are in that situation, you're probably going to pay particular attention to what Andy is going to talk about here. I think the fact that um, most people who feel like a fraud or experience imposter syndrome, you probably realize if you really think about it that you've been there before. You've you've probably been in another situation in your life where you've experienced that and and think back to that situation and and, and maybe think about where you are now with respect to that situation. And hey, you you there probably are situations in your life where you have found ways to overcome it. Um, whether it's through the way that you think about it or simply maturity or getting better at something and feeling more confident, but, but you've done it before, you can do it again kind of feeling. Some people like to think about the benefits of imposter syndrome, or at least the benefits of being a novice, let, let's say, not the benefits necessarily of imposter syndrome, but imposter syndrome is typically for people who are new at something, right? Or don't have a ton of experience or confidence or expertise at it, which means that you're a novice. But you know, 
and in, in, in imposter syndrome is is one of the downsides of being a novice, but there are upsides of being a novice. In you know, um, you come to something fresh and new, and you might have a different perspective than other people, and maybe that's the best time to get really cool insights about something. You know, um, you can maybe see something as a novice that other people who are steeped in something might not be able to see it or ask those sort of like a kid who asks those naive but really poignant questions. So recognizing the benefits of being a novice is another way. I don't know if it's about to beat the imposter syndrome, but but again, chip away at it. Um, so that's sort of the idea of embracing your beginning, your, your sort of beginner status, let's say. Um, that's another another way of thinking about it. So for me, I think we need to learn about how to shake off imposter syndrome when we find ourselves stretched at work in a way that will accelerate our learning, career or pay packet. But what about those occasions where a person feels like an imposter and they are pretty sure the people that are around them are setting them up to feel exactly those negative emotions? How can I know if the imposter syndrome is for me to work on or if it's caused by my colleagues' behaviours? Let's hear more from Ivan. So if you can imagine somebody who's sitting um, in a boardroom today, surrounded by colleagues, and they're feeling like an imposter, how can they distinguish between if they're feeling like an imposter for the reasons that we've been discussing, which is on them in order to resolve for them to, to in increase their self-confidence, or that it's the people in the room just aren't particularly pleasant and they're making them feel that way just yeah. by the environment that they're creating? Oh, this is a good question because I've been I've been in that situation, right? Me too. So sometimes there's going to be, you know, especially people who are from underrepresented populations. You might be in a room and people and you're and you're feeling like, oh my God, people are looking at me and think I'm only here because I'm a woman, or mm -hmm. I'm only there because I'm a black man, or you're only yeah. there because you I don't know why you're here. You know the boss, right? And those things are real. But I'll say always, 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 I start with what do I know and what am I capable of? And I look for a pattern of behavior, right? If I keep putting my hand up and nobody's looking at it, if I keep making ideas and nobody's hearing them, but as soon as somebody else makes the same contribution, then they're like, wait, that's a great idea, right? Once is there, I, dig I discard it. Twice, I'm like, mm. it got my eyebrows perked up. If there's three times where this action of what I'll call marginalization or putting me in the corner or kind of discarding my input, then I have to recognize that something's not right here. And I'll have that conversation that needs to be, that needs to happen, right? Which is different. Imposter syndrome means you're not putting your hand up. You're not willing to open yeah. up your voice, right? You're not doing that. There's a difference between somebody shutting you down and you being afraid. So what can be done about imposter syndrome? Let's see what today's guests think managers can do to tackle imposter syndrome in the workplace. I think the best thing you can do is sort of recognize that it's happening. And I think especially because oftentimes leaders are the arbiters of their, at least their team culture, it's important that you're not reinforcing this in any way. So I think the first thing is to look at yourself and to see what ways may I be re reinforcing this? Am I modeling overwork? Am I perfectionistic? Am I setting standards that are constantly changing and that are making people feel like they're never good enough or can't reach them? Um, I would take an evaluation of yourself and, and way, ways in which you may be setting this up. And then after you've done that and, and corrected anything that may be going on in the culture, I think it's then important to be able to say to a direct report, I think you 
may be struggling with this and it's a real thing and it's it's overcomable and you can deal with it i worry for you because you're so fantastic and you're so great but you have trouble seeing that um and that affects the way you function and work it potentially and so and i think you know pointing them in the direction of resources can be very helpful um i think oftentimes you know as, as an executive coach and a psychologist i see that the first person that ever said this to my clients is a manager and so a manager is often very important in that. But I think the emphasis of how much you value them, how good you think that they are in the work, and that this is really a struggle that that actually may make them even better, I think is an important piece of the of the conversation. You're actually the first person who um, has ever related it to perfectionism. And it, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense yeah. that if I'm feeling an imposter, I probably have tendencies towards perfectionism. But equally, if my manager is a perfectionist and demanding that level up from me, that I'm much more likely to go that road. Yes. Yeah. There's a couple of different types of, of leaders that really can trigger imposter syndrome. Perfectionistic leaders are one of them. Erratic leaders are another. So one that is like, loves you one second and hates you the next. Yeah. Um, that can be really hard because we're often also people pleasing. And so this, this vacillation can be very confusing to us. And we're constantly then looking to kind of get that people pleasing piece. Um, managers who are very uncomfortable in their positioning. So anxious leaders who feel like, I don't know if I deserve this. So they're very micromanaging of their direct reports, very concerned about how their direct reports show up and how that's a reflection on them. Um, so prove it to me, managers, managers who are like, you're only as good as your last project. Yeah. These can all really set up the dynamic. So I think it's really incumbent upon managers to think about the way they're leading and how they may be reinforcing and triggering this in their direct reports. So yeah, it depends. It depends on a lot of things, on the personalities involved, the relationship of the people involved, the tasks that we're talking about. But if I'm a manager, just to play with the idea, if I'm a manager and I recognize that someone does have imposter syndrome, um, I would want to try to set them up for success. I would want to try to build their confidence. I would want to try to um, be in touch with them and develop and ideally actually develop a strong and trusting relationship with them. I think that's probably the most important thing that, that you're not going to be able to help someone cope with or overcome the imposter syndrome unless you have a solid trusting relationship. Teresa, we have heard from Andy, who has covered trust between managers and colleagues. We've also heard from Lisa, who put a particular emphasis on perfectionist managers triggering imposter syndrome among their teammates. What are your top tips for managers in helping their team overcome imposter syndrome? I think it's interesting to go back to Ivan's point around situations where you feel like an imposter because people are making you feel unwelcomed. And I think thinking about that, there is there is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you feel like an imposter and then you don't see anyone like you, or you're kind of facing microaggressions, then managers should work extra hard for those people to either remove kind of those barriers and remove the, the examples of microaggressions in the workplace, but also to in increase representation. Um, I think for me, that's, that's something that links to diversity, links to a lot of the other topics we've spoken about. Um, and then the other thing I would say is around the idea of being a bit more transparent. I think I mention this in almost every episode, but um, I like the idea of celebrating people's successes and giving them evidence. So I think if you just tell someone you've done a great job and they feel like an imposter, they won't believe it. But if you tell them you've done a great job in X, Y, and Z, they might be a little bit more likely to take that in. And also, I guess, share your failures um, so that people know that it's sometimes you're not always succeeding. Sometimes you're also failing. 
Yeah, no, I like I like I like your tip about the the manager giving disconfirming evidence on imposter syndrome. So not simply sitting down and labeling somebody as having imposter syndrome, but picking it up and taking the action to pay attention to what they're producing and to give that to them as disconfirming evidence. And I also like the idea of the manager being the hype buddy. Mm. They're the ones who are telling their colleagues that they've got they've got it, that they don't need to worry, that they're going to smash it. And actually, if they do do a bad job, because people will fail and people will make mistakes and people will fluff up. But if they do do a bad job, letting them know that's part of life, that's part of the, the learning curve and being really forgiven in that domain. And I, th- and I think that builds trust. So we've heard from Teresa and the guests about what managers can do to help their teammates overcome imposter syndrome. Now let's hear more from Lisa about what organizations can do in terms of changing their structures and pulling levers in order to make sure that at an organizational level, imposter syndrome is less likely to occur. Yeah, this is all about our second book. Our second book was all about sort of the organizational systemic um, issues and culture issues. So the number one thing I think is really about psychological safety um, and really creating environments and cultures where people can be different and people can actually bring their whole selves to work and they can bring up conflict and they can bring up disagreement and it's safe to do so, that we are not of one thought and one mind. Um, that really troubles me in, in organizations and it's very popular as a, as, a, as a zeitgeist kind of like philosophy around culture. But I really think it's really important to have sort of like really challenging experiences where you can be challenged in the workforce. Um, I also think it's really important to make sure that we are able to tolerate difference in the workplace. So DE&I structures and, and processes and people who are, are there to kind of advocate for that become really important so that people are being seen in their whole entire selves and people are watching for that in the culture. Um, I do think it's really important people get management and leadership training. So many managers do not get trained on how to manage and they manage sometimes in very dysfunctional ways under stress. Um, and so I do think it is important for you to be trained to be a manager and for that management training to be ongoing and for people to be actually watching your leadership style and actually giving you feedback and coaching around it in case it is toxic and problematic. So when I think about imposter syndrome and imposter syndrome that's imposed by a manager or other colleagues, I usually think about ego and people who aren't willing to hear other people's perspective necessarily. I would imagine that an egotistical manager is also most likely to force conformity. So that means that there's people in the room who have brilliant ideas. They're not necessarily getting heard, leading them to be more likely to experience imposter syndrome. Everyone needs to think like a particular manager with high ego to get ahead. And these particular managers will also be more likely to hire their friends. In this environment, I would bet good money that diverse colleagues will more often feel like imposter syndrome as compared to people who are like the manager. And this is a topic I'm really interested in. So I explored it with detail with Lisa. I do think also dealing with toxic toxicity in your culture immediately and directly is incredibly important. There are so many open secrets in organizations where someone's yeah. incredibly toxic and they're being put up with because they bring in the numbers or or they're doing well for the organization, but they are terrible. And so I do think like a leader does have a lot of responsibility here besides the bottom line, which is oftentimes their focus to really focus on the ways in which their culture is becoming problematic for people to not feel like they belong and not feel like they're good enough. And oftentimes, look, organizations can benefit from imposter syndrome. And so that's probably why they don't change these things, because people work harder, people work longer, people will commit to the organization beyond committing to themselves more than oftentimes you care about the org. And that's hard. 
So something I think that you've kind of hinted at is conformity. So, you know, within organizations, if people are forced to conform when they have these diverse perspectives, it can be very hard for the organization. And, and, you know, you'll know that there's such a large research body that talks about code switching and how exhausting it is for people and it deteriorates well-being and causes people to quit. How can organizations move away from conformity? Because it seems very linked to ego. If the ego of the manager is caught up with the idea that they're creating replicas of themselves, moving away from that. So the type of training that you that you've that you've spoken about, I'm I'm really curious what that would mean in practice. Yeah, I mean, I think it really does mean a a culture shift in the way that we think about leaders, like especially C-suite leaders. I mean, we've gone to this place where C-suite leaders are kind of lauded for their kind of like narcissistic, kind of toxic, terrible tendencies to kind of create like a, a set of masses underneath them that just adhere and think that they're gods. And so I do think like that needs to shift because I think it is, it has become kind of normative to do so and think it is the way to be. And so I do think like that piece around really, like really changing the way that we look at leaders and the way that we praise them and why they have to be these things currently, you know, that are terrible, um, you know, are pathological and some in very obviously pathological. And so I do think like that piece has to change and I, it has to change culturally that we care about leaders that are, that are not like this, um, that are, don't move in these, in these kinds of ways in our, in our worlds. Um, and so I do think there has to be a tolerance from the top to really look for, for different types of leaders that have a different kind of way of being that isn't necessarily currently sought as, as kind of what we think is, what we think of as leadership. Um, so I do think that that is something I'm really concerned about and think that is moving in the wrong direction. And I want to make sure, you know, I, I'm trying to work with my leaders to kind of be different, um, the leaders that work with me. But, um, you know, it's something that I think that is is deeply, deeply problematic and I and it needs to shift from the top down because I do, th- I do agree with you. It is, it is sort of conformity is being pushed in a way that is anti this kind of model or idea because i when i'm listening to you talking i think the the bit that we never got to properly was where managers were trained to really hear different opinions to themselves yeah. where they were open to hearing these different perspectives so very often you could be somebody with a really diverse perspective and your choice is either to embrace dissent and feel terrible about it because the manager isn't listening or you do end up conforming. And I think if, if, if people can take seriously what we need to do is push against conformity, yeah. we'll see way more gains to, to diversity than we already have. Yeah, but it's really, it's, you mentioned something that I think is really powerful, which is the that ego really is yeah. very much at the center of this. And and I would say fragile ego, mm-hmm. like not like not really strong, big ego, fragile ego. And sort of this feeling that if everyone's not bought, bought in, then in essence, I'm wrong. Where in essence, what we know about kind of having really different thought and challenging thought is it brings more richness to an, ex- an organization, more creativity, more, more original thoughts, more innovation, when you have sort of people from different backgrounds, you're, you're able to kind of reach a larger audience. They have a larger perspective. Yeah. So I think it's it's really dangerous. It really makes your business model kind of really narrow um, when you have only one type of person or maybe two types of people in the organization. So I think it's really important to kind of, to really kind of push up against conformity and really tolerate that and to tolerate the dissent and know that it doesn't mean that you're wrong. It just means there are other points of view. There, it doesn't have to be these black and white notions of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's very much very con- very connected to imposter phenomenon because in essence, what we often try to break is this idea of good and bad, right and wrong, black and white thinking, like and, and really em- help them embrace the gray of the middle, which is really mostly where we kind of operate from, hopefully if we're in a healthy place. 
So what can people do to combat their imposter syndrome? Right at the beginning of this episode, you heard me talk to Ivan, who recommended interrupting negative talk cycles that were related to imposter syndrome. I noticed when he was giving examples of interruptions, he said, you got this. He also said, I outwork everybody else. I wanted to ask him more about this particular use of language. Yeah, I think when you have to recognize is that, you know, my affirmation, right? I, nobody outworks me. I can learn anything. Weren't statements like I can be the smartest guy in a room or I can yeah. do, I can be a millionaire. What I'm talking about are actions and behaviors that I can be responsible for. I can be the first there. I can be the last to leave. I can read this policy book from one, from one end to the other, and I can read it again. What I want to make sure it's the thing what you call showing up for yourself is being responsible for your behaviors and actions that will drive you to success, right? You didn't yeah. hear me say, I will be the best person in this job tomorrow. That's unrealistic, but it's like, I can do hard things. And I remind myself that when things are tough and hard, it wasn't about immediate success. It's about what am I in control of? So for, for you, mantras should be either linked to an action. So something that I'm actually, I can take and I can see myself taking or a behavior or linked to something that has happened in the past. So I've, I've already learned hard things. This is something else that, that, that I can do. Yes. And here's the science behind those three affirmations. Okay. So Sonia Lubomowski, 2006 Harvard study, you can, your readers can Google or your listeners can Google them. If you use three affirmations a day and you're in the marketing world, you're 17% more productive in the material that you're putting out there. Three affirmations a day if you're in the analytics and the problem-solving world. You know, I got to find a needle in the haystack. I, I got to figure out this spreadsheet or this process or this diagnostic. You're 27% faster to solve complex problems. Wow. And if you're in a revenue generation world, sales, oh my God, I'm in the sales. I can't close a deal. I'm no good. Stop it. You increase your sales revenue by over 30% year over year, right? What you tell yourself you become. So can I ask you the, the, the amount of times people should repeat their mantras per day? So is it just when I wake up in the morning, I should say them, or is this something that I should be doing throughout my day? You know, I don't know if I've got a firm set that says, okay, do it eight times a day, do it nine yeah. times a day. It's like a skill. So to me, when I'm doing a new skill, let's say I'm tossing a basketball or I'm learning how to type, I practice the skill until it becomes automatic. So you'll see me with them by my computer, by my, my rear view mirror buy a book that I might open up. And the more negative talk comes in, I just get there. I just go open, I, I go to it. Till eventually the negative talk doesn't go there. So when I first took a new job, man, I was doing that skill all the time. And after about 18 months, oh, only a little bit. Now, 10 years in, I'm hardly ever there, but it's still coming now and then. And so that's up to you and each individual out there is how much are they living in that negative space will dictate how many times they have to go to it. I love the recommendation of using mantras in order to overcome imposter syndrome. It's quick, it's easy, it's free, and I think everybody should do it. But what else can we do to combat imposter syndrome when it shows up and causes us trouble? I asked Lisa and Andy this exact question to get their best advice and tips. Yeah, so I would say read my book. Um, Own Your Greatness is oh, about to be really good. 
<laughs> Thank you. But the nine steps um, in the research that have been shown to kind of really change the game. And we have actually been able to look at some data to show that if people complete the book and the steps, we can, we've seen a 30% drop in their imposter syndrome scores over completing it. So these are research-backed, you know, kind of interventions. So what we see is that it's really important to kind of understand where it came from, because oftentimes where it came from is how it's operating today, shockingly enough. Um, and then really being able to, that helps to open up and figure out what the triggers are and why the triggers are what they are and being able to kind of identify those triggers, watch them coming in and work on that cycle. How do you break that cycle? How do you choose a different behavior? Instead of overworking, can we choose something different? Can we actually plan how we're going to work and make sure that that is not an overworking cycle and make sure that we adhere to that? Or can we kind of avoid self-sabotage by creating some kind of way of engaging the process and reducing the anxiety to kind of move forward? Um, we talk about dealing with automatic negative thoughts and really kind of challenging them in much healthier ways so you can have a reality-based, accurate perspective about your accomplishments and what's happening and even your failures. I couldn't have asked for tips about how to overcome imposter syndrome and met Ivan without asking for his advice with respect to public speaking, given he is an awesome public speaker. I've seen your TED Talk. It's one of my favorites. I, probably the absolute favorite, actually, of all the TED Talks that I've seen. But over and over again, public speaking is a place where many people suffer from imposter syndrome. So what's your advice for somebody who has that invitation to give a TED Talk or do some other big public speaking event and just doesn't want to do it, even though it's good for them? Well, you know, so my TED Talk has 28 million views. I know. You know that I was scared crapless in that TED Talk. <laughs> In fact, if you listen to that TED Talk with a careful eye, you'll see I bumbled the very definition of the, of the word I was speaking on. So here's my advice. You're going to speak and you're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw it up, but it will still be amazing. Let go of that fear. That's about the outcome, right? You're trying to be perfect. My TED Talk, which people tell me over and over again they love, I know how scared I was. I know us, gosh, I sometimes listen as like, oh, dang it, I screwed that up. But you know what? It only matters to me. It's made a difference in so many people's lives. So for all you folks who are thinking about getting out there and wanting to public speak, that talk started with one person. Then it went to a class of 12. Then it went to a class of 24. By the time wow. I gave that TED Talk, even though I was scared crapless, I'd been teaching it and giving it probably over 150 times for three years, right? Don't expect to be perfect. Your first kick of the can, folks. You yeah. got this. And I will say, Ivan, I've listened to it and I did not notice a mistake. For me, it's flawless. I will <laughs> confess that one of my biggest public speaking events was in NYU and I really did badly. So my mentor at the time was in the audience and I said to him afterwards, oh my God, I did so badly. And he said, you did. You did really, really badly. But I think the key was to do it again. And that yes. wasn't something that kind of stopped me. So even if you're not as fantastic as Ivan... Um, uh, um, on, on the first go. And I, and I really, really mean that. Even if you just, you do it and it doesn't necessarily work out, there's other talks and people forgive you. I think people, people don't, don't hold it against you if you make one, if you make one mistake. Yeah. And it's, it's the content that's more valuable than the delivery. We sometimes think yeah. people are looking to us and watching. It's really, do you have a meaningful message to share? And when you do, people want to hear it. So our guests today have taught me a lot about imposter syndrome. It's often linked to perfectionism. We should recognize that it's okay not to know everything and embrace discomfort in learning and growth. We also need to make sure that we distinguish imposter syndrome from simply working in a toxic environment. 
we need to think about what we're actually going to do if we experience it. We also talked about how crucial it is to move away from conformity and foster psychological safety if organizations want to nurture diversity and inclusion, which we know is key for addressing imposter syndrome and creating a supportive work environment. Before Teresa and I wrap up, I wanted to leave you with this amazing quote from Ivan. I just want to remind your listeners that everybody has it, right? Yeah. Let go of being perfect, put your hand up and take risks. And if you screwed up, it ain't the end of the world. We'll start again. So Teresa, you heard what Ivan had to say. If you screw up, it ain't the end of the world. What other takeaways are you taking from this episode today? Um, <laughs> that's great. She hasn't, prepared. she hasn't prepared. You see, we should leave that in because if you screw up, it ain't the end of the world. This is perfect. I, <laughs> We're actively circumventing Teresa's imposter syndrome. <laughs> that's, so that's so good. I think that's brilliant. Okay, let's let's try again. So Teresa, before I wrap up, any last comments on today's episode? So I really loved Ivan's idea about mantras, but I'm not sure that his personal mantra will work for me. I think maybe outworking someone else, I would find a little bit difficult because it's competitive based. So I think they have to be personal. They have to be kind of based on what, what you need for yourself. And I also think the other topic that we might not have discovered that much about is the idea of burnout. So there are some studies that look at imposter syndrome leading to burnout, and maybe that's a topic we can explore in the future. Yeah, no, I really like that idea. So thinking about if imposter syndrome isn't figured out, if somebody doesn't actively work on it and it persists for a long time, how it actually impacts well-being and whether or not there are burnout symptoms. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Workforce. We can only squeeze so much from our guests into the final edit of each episode. So there is bonus content with all of today's guests available to watch on my YouTube channel. Please head to the show notes for where to find those or follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram where I will be posting the content. A huge thanks to Dr. Lisa Orbe-Austin, Professor Andy Malinsky, and Dr. Ivan Joseph for sharing their time and thoughts with us, and to Teresa Almeida for simply being incredibly, amazingly, stupendously fabulous. If that doesn't circumvent her imposter syndrome, nothing will. This is the bit where I plead for your support. Please give a helping hand in getting Workforce in front of more listeners by subscribing, rating, and reviewing wherever you are listening to this. We'd also love to hear your questions and ideas for future episode topics. We love to receive those. And you can contact me personally anytime through my website, www.gracelorden.com. I'm Dr. Grace Lorden, and I hope I earned the privilege of your time. Bye for now. We should leave it in. That's so good.